God, as we say, uh, praised you in song just now, we, we praise you also in our prayers, lifting up our hearts and thanks to, to you for all that you've done to us. You've taken us in our most wretched, pitiful state, and you've given us life. We've been raised from death to life in your son, Jesus. And I pray that, that now you would teach us to live all of life in light of that reality. May, may everything that we do, everything that we are, may it all be lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 10, we hear this story. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is a fascinating story, and undoubtedly many of you will have heard it before. Note that the man is asking Jesus a crucial question. What do I do to get eternal life? This is a huge question. Now, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God, so really this is a question about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God's people live with God forever. It's the place of eternal life. So really the man is asking, well, how do I enter God's kingdom? How do I get this eternal life of the kingdom? Jesus first directs the man to God's word. He says, well, well, this is what God commanded through Moses. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't, don't lie. Don't murder. And the man says, well, I've done all these things since I, was, since I was young. And Jesus has this great, there's this great narrative line there. Jesus looks at him and he loves him. In other words, this isn't about him picking on this man. He looks at him and he loves him. And so he gives him the key to eternal life, the key to entering into God's kingdom liquidate all of your assets and give it away. Give to the poor and then come and follow me. In other words, he's telling him, transfer your treasure, your wealth from earth to heaven. He's, he's telling the man to, to send his treasure on ahead of him up to heaven. 
But tragically, as we see, the man goes away sad because the cost is more than he's willing to bear. So in the end, he wants something else more than he wants eternal life. He wants to keep his stuff, keep his his riches, his wealth, more than he wants to be in God's kingdom. As we continue to learn from the book of Proverbs how to live a life under God's wisdom, we're going to try to answer two questions that arise from this story when it comes to money. The first question is, well, why would Jesus say this? Why would he tell this man to sell everything and to give to the poor and then to follow him? And the second question is, how do we make sure Jesus never asks us to do the same? (laughs) Now, the second question is, could Jesus possibly ask us to do the same. So as we ask these two questions, uh, Proverbs is going to direct us toward wise thinking and then wise acting when it comes to money. So we'll see this in two parts. First, focusing on, on wise thinking when it comes to money and then looking at wise acting when it comes to money. So let's look at this first question here. Why would Jesus tell this man to sell everything and give to the poor and follow him? If we're going to be able to answer this question, we have to learn to think wisely when it comes to money. Proverbs has a lot to say about money. We saw last week that it has a lot to say about how we earn money and how do we do that without uh, kind of destroying our souls. But it also teaches us what it means to to have money. And one of the things it teaches us is that there's danger in having money. So Proverbs 10.15 says, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. We get the same first line in Proverbs 18:11 and this one's a bit more pointed the wealth of the rich is their fortified city they imagine it a wall too high to scale in other words wealth has a tendency to direct our security toward it and toward itself the more money we have the more we might have a sense of security or a feeling of security it seems like a fortified city it seems like a wall that's too high to scale But if we think that, then we've missed the neighbor uh, proverb of Proverbs 18.11. Proverbs 18.10 points us to the true source of security. It says, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And so as we see what a true fortified city is, a true fortified tower is, wealth is shown for its, its feeble imitation of God himself. So the wise understand that whatever trust we put into money and wealth and stuff is misplaced trust. Chapter 11 has several, uh, a series of, of proverbs that, that point out how fleeting money really is and how, how we, it's not a stable thing to put your hope in. So Proverbs 11.7 Hopes placed in mortals die with them. All the promise of their power comes to nothing. Verse 4 makes it a little little bit more pointed yet. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Or 11.28. Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. What Proverbs is trying to get us to understand is that that money can't provide the security that we're looking for. It can't provide the security that we need for life. You can look around the world and see that this is true. Economies are subject to recessions and depressions. Your house can flood or can catch fire. Uh, Your savings account, whether it's in a bank that's insured or or whether it's wads of cash stuffed underneath your mattress, can, can lose all value with inflation. Gold can be stolen from you. There's nothing secure about money. The danger of money is if you have it, you're tempted to trust in it and to look to it for security. But but the bad news is that it's insecure. So think about it this way. 
Uh, have you ever seen a, a cardboard boat race? I think these are always fun because uh, the pictures are always of someone uh, tragically sinking in their little cardboard boat. What happens to cardboard boats? They sink, right? The, the whole fun of a cardboard boat race is to see who can go the longest, the fastest, before their boat actually sinks. Cardboard boats aren't made to last long. They're made of the wrong materials. And, and let's just say that the, the makers of them tend to not be expert boat makers. They don't necessarily understand buoyancy and speed and, and reliability and stability and these kind of things. They're not made to last. Finding your security in money or in wealth is like trusting one of these cardboard boats to take you across Lake Michigan. It's foolish. It's not what it's designed to do. It's not made to last like that. It's not made to have your security put in it. So wise people understand that money is just not secure. And along with that, we need to see that, that money has limited value. It does us some good. It's a useful tool, but, but it has limited value. There are lots of things that are better than wealth or money. And Proverbs lists a whole bunch of them, most notably in Proverbs fifteen sixteen. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. So fear of the Lord, in other words, a life of wisdom, is much better than having a whole bunch of money. Or the same thing in, in chapter 16, verse 16. How much better to get wisdom than gold or to get insight rather than silver? Here are other things that Proverbs says are, are better than money or wealth. Love, fifteen seventeen. Righteousness, 16.8. Peace and quiet, 17.1. Walking blamelessly, 28.6. So money is good. It's a useful tool. But what is better than money is a life of wisdom. So if you and I are going to gain right thinking about money, if we're going to think about it in a wise kind of a way, we have to see that it's potentially dangerous because it can draw our attention away from putting our security in God to put our security in it. And it also has limited value. It's far inferior to a life of knowing God and fearing him and living in wisdom. One more point here before we leave this, this idea of, of wise thinking about money. We need to learn to whom our money really belongs. We saw last week that, that all good gifts come from the hand of God. And Deuteronomy 8 reminds us that even our, our ability to work, our very ability to work to earn a living is given to us by God himself. And Proverbs 22, 2 reminds us that, that rich and poor alike, all of us are made by the Creator. We share the, same, the, share the same Creator. What this is pointing to is the fact that God is the true owner of everything that we have. Psalm 24, 1 puts it in all-encompassing uh, manner and says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In other words, there's nothing in all of creation that doesn't belong to God, that is not his, that he does not claim as his own. And as followers of Jesus, we are servants of God in everything. So, so we don't possess anything as true owners. And that means that even our money, that's supposedly ours, is really God's money given to us and entrusted to us to be used as wise stewards and as managers. So we, our task is to manage the money that God has entrusted to our care in a wise way. So wise thinking about money is, is, first of all, refusing to allow it to replace God as our sense of security and our identity. And it's also seeing that, that money is God's possession given to us for our management for the kingdom. So now we can begin to answer our question, why did Jesus tell the man to sell everything and to give to the poor? Well, it's because money had become a replacement for God, for him. 
And the more money that you have, the more easily it is to idolize it, the stronger the temptation is. Or as a, an old hip-hop song put it, more money, more problems. But this is what has happened to the rich young ruler, right? My wife said I had to say that at some point in the series. <laughs> but this is what's happened to the rich young ruler. He has a lot of stuff. He has a lot accumulated. He has a lot of money. And so that has drawn his heart away from God so that he wants that stuff, the temporary stuff, more than he wants God. Money has replaced God in his life, and so he cannot part with his money. Now, this demands some introspection on our part. We have to be, some, do some soul-searching here ourselves. So the question I want you to ask yourself is this. Well, how do I view money? What do I think of money? What is money to me? Uh, one of the exercises that I have couples do when we're doing premarital counseling is called the meaning of money. And, and it's basically just demonstrating that people think about money in different kind of ways. Uh, if, if money's not going to be a source of constant uh, turmoil and conflict in a marriage, each partner has to understand how the other views marriage so they can kind of come to terms with it. But, but the assessment basically just gives four different views of what uh, money can be, how, how people think of money. So for some people, as we've seen in Proverbs, money is a source of security. So the more money I have in the bank, the more stable and secure I feel. But for others, it's not security. Uh, for others, money is a source of enjoyment. So the more money I have, the more fun I can have. But for others, money is a source of status. You can define your place on the totem pole based on your income level or your ability to spend, your conspicuous consumption, these kind of things. But for others, it's, it's a source of, of power. I can use money to control others, whether that's through selected giving or voting with my dollars or, or withholding an allowance or whatever it might be. What I want you to do is, is to think about this at home and think, well, well, which one of those do I tend to think of money in terms of? Do I think of it as security? Do I think of it as enjoyment? Do I think of it as status? Do I think of it as power? All of us tend to fall into one or, or at least two of these different things. So, so first of all, just assess where you are and be honest. Well, how do I think about money? What is money to me? And then the second step you have to take is, is after determining this, well, how does my view of money correspond to what the Bible says about money. So, so how does money as enjoyment, how is that a sub-biblical view of what money is? And how does that need to come under the correction of what the Bible is teaching about money? And then we've got to come back to the question about Jesus' command to the rich young man. And this is a good diagnostic question. How would you respond if Jesus asked you the same thing? How does this command to go and sell everything and give to the poor, how does this hit you at an emotional level? When you really look at this story and you put yourself in the guy's shoes, how does that hit you at an emotional level? And then what does that reveal about your heart and about your thinking about money? Okay, so, so we've got to start with wise thinking about money. But then we've got to ask the other question that's actually moving us from thinking to action. Could Jesus possibly ask you and I to do the same thing that he told this rich young man to do? To answer that question, we have to learn to act wisely with money. So at the starting point, the foundation for this whole thing is in Proverbs chapter 3. Look at verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. And that's the starting point. Honor the Lord with your wealth. So whatever else we're going to actually do with our money, wise acting with money, this is the foundation. We desire to honor God with our giving. And notice there is a promise tied to that. We're going to 
come back to that promise in a minute here. But the, the underlying action, whatever else we do with our money, we have to use it in a way that's honoring to God. So how do we do that? How do we use money in a way that, that honors God? Well, the consistent thing that Proverbs teaches us is to be generous with those in need. It's trying to build in us generosity. So look at Proverbs eleven, twenty-four and 25. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. So there's, there's a bit of a promise here, and again, we're going to come to that. But, but for now, see that the promise is trying to make us uh, generous people. It's trying to help us to see that, that generosity, that giving to others is, is a good thing. And as it does that, it's also warning against being stingy with those who are needy. So Proverbs twenty two, sixteen. One who oppresses the poor to increase his wealth, and one who gives gifts to the rich, both come to poverty. Or similar verse twenty eight eight. Whoever increases wealth by taking interest or profit from the poor amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. In other words, if you are gaining wealth by oppression and injustice, you can't expect to keep that wealth. God's not going to let you keep that forever. So instead of being stingy or being greedy and being unjust, we are to be generous people. So 28, 27, those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. Now, why is it important for us to, to give generously to those who are in need? Well, because God watches over them, and, and how we treat them is effectively how we are treating God. That's what Proverbs says here. So we look at, look, look at Proverbs 17.5. We get this rather eye-opening one. Whoever mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. So how we're looking at the poor is actually how we're looking at God. If we treat them with contempt, we're treating their maker, God, with contempt. And likewise, the way we treat the needy then affects how God will treat us. So Proverbs 22, 22 and 23. Do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court. Why? For the Lord will take up their case and will exact life for life. So God is on the side of those who are poor and those who are needy. And if you treat them poorly, God is going to take up their cause. But of course, it's not just negative warnings. There's also uh, positive uh, rewards and, and promises of blessing as well. So Proverbs fourteen thirty one, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Similarly, in nineteen seventeen, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they've done. So Proverbs is connecting our horizontal relationships, our relationships with other people, to our vertical relationship with God. So if we think that we can ignore and, and act harshly toward people around us and still be able to worship God rightly, we're fooling ourselves. We're acting like, like utter fools. Our, our horizontal relationships and our vertical relationship with God are connected. How you treat others matters to God, and it affects your relationship with him. Now, I want to come back to this, this notion of, of blessing. Proverbs connects generosity with blessing. When we give to those in need, we shouldn't be surprised to find that God will bless us with more. 
So the verse that we just looked at, and we've already seen this, 1917, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they've done. We get a number of occasions where the same kind of uh, a promise of reward comes. So 22, uh, verse 9, the generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. And then a couple of verses that we saw uh, at the outset, 11, 24, and 25. Listen to the promises here. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper, but whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Now, I don't know how you react to these kind of verses, but I get a little nervous when I hear them. Because some people, in my experience, have skewed them to become sort of a magical formula for wealth accumulation. So perhaps you've seen a, a televangelist say something like, send a check into my ministry, kind of above and beyond what you think you can give, and, and wait for God to bless you. Because if you do that, if you write this kind of seed faith money out, then God will come back and, and see that he won't open the storehouses and give you more money than you know what to do with. See, that's how sinful hearts kind of take verses like this and see the connection of blessing and generosity, and, and they, they use biblical truth then for selfish ends. If you want to get rich, just give more money away. But it misses the whole point of why God is blessing the generous. See, God gives the generous more so that they can give more. I mean, they've proven themselves to be faithful givers. They've proven themselves to be generous givers. So God gives them more so that they're able to give more to those who are in need. It's totally missing the point to think that you could use that extra money on yourself instead of using it to give away as you have with your previous assets. I heard a pastor talk about uh, asking that God would give uh, the wealthy people in his area a more generous heart. He lived in a really wealthy part of the country, and he just felt like people were, were too stingy with their money. They're too greedy. There's you know, these, these huge houses, these nice cars. It was part of the country where conspicuous consumption is a really big thing. And so he was praying, God, give them a heart for, for your church, for your people, for your kingdom. Release them from this, this stinginess and, and free them for generosity. And then he was saying, and, and if you're not going to do that, then, then give me a bunch of money so that I can give it away. And he had actually written a book and ended up becoming a super popular book and making a whole bunch of money, and he was able to do that, actually give it away uh, for God's kingdom. But he would be totally missing the point if God had blessed him, and then he started using that for his own selfish desires instead of giving it away, which was the whole point of his prayer in the first place. Here's the root of acting wisely with money. We've got to transfer our treasure, the stuff that we really value, from the earthly stuff around us that rots and dies away to the stuff that really matters so that we have treasure in heaven, so we have an eternal perspective on our money. That's what Jesus uh, gets at when he says uh, in, in Matthew six nineteen through 21, he's, he's looking at it, saying, look at how you are spending your treasure. Look at where your treasure is and, and see the difference that this makes. This is Matthew six nineteen to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's really what Jesus had been telling the rich young man when he told him to go and to sell everything. Did you catch that line? Go, sell everything, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Jesus is telling the man to transfer his wealth, his treasure, away from the stuff that's going to pass away to the stuff that's going to last forever, to heaven. 
Now, you and I have a, a, we in our culture have a saying about money and stuff. We say, you can't take it with you. And we all know this. And Paul told that to Timothy. He said in 1 Timothy 6, we brought nothing into the world. We're going to take nothing out of it. If we're clothed, if we have food, that's enough for us. So we know the truth. We know that we can't take it with us. And yet somehow we still have a very hard time parting with it, at least most of us. So here's a good diagnostic tool to gauge where you are on this. Again, take a look at Jesus' command to the young man. What if he told you to sell everything and give it to the poor? What if he, what if he literally told you that? Would you do what the, the man did and, and walk away sad? Or would you see this as an opportunity to, to give away way more than you ever thought you'd ever be able to do? Would you go away sad because that's where your heart is? Or would you see that this is a kingdom opportunity? You get to give everything away. Look at how much you could give if you sold everything and gave it away. And the question is, well, well, could Jesus really ask this of us? Well, of course he could. Everything belongs to him in the first place. And if this is what would do our soul good, if this is what we need to, to break the grip of money on our souls, then of course he could ask it. And of course we'd have to obey him because he's our king. And when he tells us something, we've got to do it. But somehow this is really hard for us, right? Most of us, if, if asked what, what Jesus asked this man, most of us would walk away sad just like he did. There was a big study a few years ago published under the title uh, Passing the Plate by Christian Smith and a couple others. And, and what it found was not, not too good. They found that there are some Christians who are very generous givers. They get that their resources are God's resources and they're joyfully using them for his kingdom. Now, whatever, it's not about higher income levels and lower income levels. It's about having a heart for, for generosity, understanding that everything is God's. But the truth is most of us are not there. Here are some of the stats. 10% of us, 10% of evangelical Christians, give away nothing. One in 10 give away nothing at all, not even like a token $5 a year. 10% of us give nothing at all. 36% of us, so more than one in three, give away less than 2% of our income. So you make $100, you're going to give maybe 50 cents, maybe a dollar, maybe $1.50, less than $2. 36% of us, one in three. Only one in four of us actually gives a 10% tithe or more. And the median annual giving for an American Christian, so if you go from giving least to giving most, and you pick the person right in the middle, the median annual giving for an American Christian is $200. That's not very much money. It's about the cost of a Ludington Daily News subscription. It's not very much. Now, interestingly, the, the lowest income levels actually give a larger percentage than those in the low to middle and middle income levels. Community Christians who make less than 12500 a year, it's not very much, 12500 a year, they give away 7% of their income, which is the highest percentage of giving until you get over $90,000 a year in income. And perhaps the most telling discovery is the difference between what we think that we're giving and what's actually coming out of our wallets. So one study found that 25% that of the people said that they tithed 10% of their uh, annual uh, income to charity. So 25% saying they're giving at least 10%. But the actual numbers showed that only 3% even gave as much as 5% of their income in a given year. So 25% of us think that we're tithing, but only 3% are even giving 5% of our income. What that means is that many of us are deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're far more generous than we actually are with our money. 
And further, we seem to have developed coping mechanisms to help us maintain our stinginess and our greed. So quoting here, there is in American Christians a kind of comfortable guilt, that is, living with an awareness and feeling of culpability for not giving money more generously, but maintaining that at a low enough level of discomfort that it's not too disturbing or motivating enough to actually increase giving. So many Christians did not have clean consciences about money, but neither did they seem prepared to change their financial dealings in ways that would eliminate their modest levels of guilt. Now this is all very depressing uh, to me, and, and perhaps it's uh, guilt-inducing as well, but, but that's not the point. I mean, undoubtedly, if this is a national survey, undoubtedly this is true here too. There are und- undoubtedly people here who give away very little of their income and perhaps nothing at all. But this is sad for a number of reasons. On the one hand, it's sad because it means that God has given us resources that we're not using for his kingdom. And they, they estimated that, that if American Christians gave what they were capable of giving, there would be an extra $46 billion to use for God's kingdom. And they said that was a really, really low threshold number. It's probably more like twice that if we actually gave what we could actually give. And that's a, a huge amount of uh, resources that could be used for evangelism and, and giving to the poor and needy and all these discipleship programs and all this. There's a lot of money out there in our pockets that we're keeping in our pockets and using ourselves. We could be using it with eternal significance. $46 billion minimum. But it's sad not just because there's a lack of of kingdom resources available that God has given us, we're being stingy with it. It's not just sad because of the loss of resources. It's also sad because it means so many of us are missing out on the joy of giving. Let me just say this right at the outset. This isn't about increasing your guilt. It's not about squeezing your pocket belt. It's not about meeting a church budget. This is about experiencing the freedom and the joy of being able to use God's money for God's purposes. I recently read a little book, a good little book, um, called The Treasure Principle by Randy Elkhorn, and I brought it up here. If you, if you want a copy of this, I can find a way to, to get you one. But um, he, uh, he brings us back to the concept of, of you can't take it with you, but he adds a second clause to that. He says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead of you. He's getting at this point that you can exchange your earthly treasure, the stuff that's going to rot away and you, after you die you're done with, you're trading earthly treasure for heavenly treasure. It's giving us a, an eternal perspective on how we use our resources and our money. So Alcorn's reminding us that we can continue in the default of, of using our money to get stuff and, and the stuff that's not going to last. We can keep using our money for that, or we can start using our money with, with eternal perspective to have an eternal reward attached to it, because when we give to God's kingdom, then our heart is with God's kingdom, and it changes fundamentally who we are. Our wealth can be transferred from the stuff that's not going to last to the stuff that's going to matter for eternity. See, God has entrusted resources to each one of us, and all of our resources are to be managed and to be stewarded for God's kingdom. So this isn't about, you know, money in church and stuff like that. This is about freeing your heart from, from idolatry to be able to actually worship God with every part of who you are, even your pocketbook. It's a fundamental transformation about how we think about money. And I know the feeling of being attached to money and stuff. This has, in, in my life, been one of the, the biggest idols of my heart. I hold on to my stuff really tightly, and I, and I want more money. This is, this is one of the idols of my heart. But I find that as I give, 
away my money, as I give away my stuff, as I, as I think about using my resources for God's kingdom, it frees my heart from the idols that I'm trying to worship so that I can actually worship the God who deserves my worship. In other words, it helps move my treasure from earth to heaven. This uh, clicked for me recently when my wife and I got, uh, had an opportunity to redirect a, a small amount of funds to do a little project we were doing on the side. And, and I just remember thinking for the first time, wait, I get to make a choice with how I use my money. I mean, there are lots of things that are inevitable, right? Like we've got a mortgage, we're paying that, we pay for electricity, we, we end up paying for internet at home and things like that. But, but not all of those things are inevitable. We don't have to have internet at home. We do choose to have internet at home. But we could make the choice someday to say, let's not do that so that we can give a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. But somehow it's just really freeing to have that realization that we have consumer choices. We don't have to keep putting money back into the machine. We can start using money with eternal value. And it made us re-look at, at how we uh, think about everything that we own. We start looking at our possessions and think, well, well, how can we use that for God's kingdom? How can we use that for God's kingdom? So we're thinking, okay, well, how do we, how do we give away stuff? How do we use stuff wisely for God's kingdom? See, the thing is, this, the more you get a, a vision for, for generosity, the more you get a vision for giving, the more exciting it is. I used to think that, that the rich young man, of course he went away sad. Jesus was asking him to be poor for the rest of his life. And I used to think, well, it's not very nice of Jesus to pick on him like that. But, but note that editorial note. He looked at him and he loved him. In other words, Jesus is offering to set him free from the biggest idol of his heart. Think of all the money that that man would be able to give to the poor and to the needy and think of the difference that that could make. When you get a heart for giving, you want to give more. One of the stories that, that Randy Elkhorn uh, tells in that little book is about uh, a man who um, had been challenged by Bill Bright to give a million dollars. And he's thinking, okay, my, my company made 50000 last year. So uh, Bill Bright asked him how much he had given, and he, he was pretty pleased with himself. He said, I gave 37% uh, uh, to, uh, to the kingdom last year. 37%, pretty good. And so Bill Bright said, well, why don't you raise it to 50000 this year? Say, okay, well, I only made 50000 this whole year. I think you've got this wrong. You've missed the numbers here. But they okay, well, so they prayed about it, and, and, and what they found is God actually provided so that they were able to give away $50,000 that next year. And then after they got that, they got really excited about this, and they set their goals on that million-dollar mark. It seemed totally unreasonable, totally unfeasible, but they set their sights on it, and, and actually a few years in, they were actually able to make the million-dollar uh, giving mark. It's, there's an excitement that grows in this. I think for most of us, we, we think you know, when someone asks us for money, they're, they're trying to take the fun away or they're trying to you know, make us feel uncomfortable. That's where all this guilt comes from. But if we feel guilty about giving, if we feel guilty about money, then, then we're missing something on a, on a fundamental level here. My wife worked at the uh, Advancement Division of Wheaton College for a number of years. Uh, and, and if you don't know what advancement means, it's basically the people who uh, gather money for the school. So they're the people who call up alumni and say, hey, do you want to give this year? And most people, you know, you get the phone call and say, okay, okay, well, I'm not going to give this year, whatever. But they, uh, they had um, one story that stuck with me from her time there. There was a family uh, that the school contacted asking for a specific gift. I don't remember what the numbers were, but let's say they, they went and they said, uh, we would like $10,000 for this particular project. And uh, the family, they raised their eyebrows. They thought, there's no way we can give $10,000. And the college finds out, turns out they were actually a little bit embarrassed to be asking for that much, but they had a particular need there, and, and so they were going to ask this couple for it. Several weeks later, the couple sent them a, a card in the mail thanking them for asking for that big of a number because they realized that if the college was asking for that, the college has an idea of how much they make each year, and so they know that that means that there are people at their income level that have that kind of giving potential. 
who make the same amount, and yet they're able to give that kind of a gift. And it really made this family start rethinking how they view their finances and how they view their ability to give. And so they, they actually said they weren't able to give that, that $10,000 gift or whatever it was at that point, but they were able to give a gift and then start restructuring their lives so that they could come to the point of being able to be that level of generous givers. See, when you get a vision for this, when God frees your heart from the idolatry of money to be able to give generously and to give freely, that's what you want to do. You want to give more and more and more. I always had a really hard time with this because I thought, again, man, Jesus is just being mean here. Why would he say that? And then I thought, well, it's just because the man is rich. This isn't about middle-income level people or lower-income level people. This is only about rich people. But what it's really about is the idolatry of our hearts. Jesus wants to get into the things that draw us away from him and release us from the bondage of that so that we can follow him and serve him in everything. Now, there's, of course, lots more to say about this. There's lots of specifics, lots of details. Uh, I would, again, encourage you to take a look at this book, uh, The Treasure Principle, and, and you could talk to me. We could find some other resources for you as well. But, but what I want to start with is, is, is looking again at, at what Jesus said to the rich young man and taking an honest look at yourself, asking yourself that question, what if Jesus actually asked me to do that? Could I possibly ever, in my wildest imagination, obey him if he asked that of me? And if the answer is no, if you would have gone away sad like him, what that means is that you need to start doing some work on your heart because it means that you're thinking of money in a way that's unbiblical. So you've got to come back to that story again and again. See, see where you are. Gauge where, you're, where you, your view of money is. Gauge your own generosity. Look at your pocketbook. Look at what your actual giving is. Not what you think you're giving, what your actual giving is. And take a look at what that really means about your heart. I pray that in his grace, God would, would free us from one of the biggest idols of our culture so that more and more we see everything as his and that we'd be able to experience the incredible joy of being able to use everything we have and everything we are for his kingdom because it's his kingdom that's going to last forever. It's his kingdom that really matters. Please pray with me. God, it can be so hard to talk about money uh, in our culture. We've, we've seen many bad examples of, of, of even uh, Christians or supposed Christians talking about money and, and using it in, in ungodly ways and, and inducing guilt and all these things. God, I pray that you'd free us from, from guilt and move us to joy. I don't, wanna, I don't want people to go away thinking, oh, I should probably give more, or, or oh, they, they, they just want our money. Oh, God, we want to follow you. We want to follow you in everything. You have given us so much. I thank you for, for Jesus, the one who has given us everything we could possibly need. And I ask that, that you would make us, like him, givers, that we would become givers because of you, the great giving God. I pray that you free our hearts from idolatry and, and help us to love you more than anything. Help us to want your kingdom more than anything else. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.